I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. It's been a pleasure for me in preparing for this talk to be in Tim's head for 300 pages, and we were talking just beforehand um, that it's a quite a strange book to summarise and to describe, so we're hopefully going to tease it out. We'll be talking about the nature of consciousness, wrapping it all up in 45 minutes, coming to grips with it. And just to give you a basic sort of terrain of the book, as far as I can see, it's, there's a balance between uh, Tim taking on some of the sort of philosoph philosophical tradition of consciousness, what it means, what various thinkers through the ages have thought about what, how it is that we know what's going on in the world. But intercut with that is his research and visits to various neuroscientists who are slicing open uh, the brains of mice and examining them under the finest electron microscopes to see which neurons are firing at what moment to try and find some sort of physiological basis for why things are conscious of the world around them. And I think it's that tension um, between sort of ideas of consciousness and it's somehow this physical mirror in the brain or in the body somewhere that is sort of one of the main thrusts of this wonderful book. Um, and Tim, I think we could start by sort of maybe you explaining how it was that you wanted consciousness to be your theme for this one. God. I'm very nervous about this evening. This is uh, the first time I've talked about this book, which obviously is, even though I do work in different genres, is, would seem to be out of my league, as it were. So perhaps the best way into this is to explain to you why I got into this, and if I think about why I got into writing this book, I trace it back to a moment. And it's very clear in my head in 2011, which I'm going to which I'm going to describe. Uh, I'm going to read perhaps a page from the book. We're talking about we're talking about a conference. I'm a, I'm a professor at a university in Milan. Often other professors have conferences. They need someone to speak, and they rope you in. This conference was called Neuroaesthetics When Art and the Brain Collide. You weren't expecting that word, were you? Collide. I don't think it was an English native speaker who invented this title for the conference, which I thought was very unpromising. But I was invited to speak about the relation between art and the brain, and my, this was in Italian universities, that you have to have somebody who protects you, as it were. I use the word with all its ominous uh, connotations. And this was my protect protectress. So I had to do this. And I gave a little talk about words and, and where, they, where they might be, as it were, in relation to one's life and one's psyche. And I was there for the whole conference. And there was a moment... When, when something happened that I'm going to read you a little bit about. There'll be all kinds of cuts as I read, so do bear with me. There are no images. 
This was the first time I noticed Riccardo Manzotti. He stood up in the audience and said those words most emphatically in English with a strong Italian accent. So the conference was neuroesthetics when art and the brain collide. And the star of the show was a man called Zemir Zeki, professor of neuroesthetics, a word he himself invented. Isn't that great when you invent and then you become the only professor available, isn't that? <laughs> uh, Zemir Zeki then, who was professor of neuroesthetics at the University of College of London. His paper, full of PowerPoint slides showing complex graphs of neural, neurological activity and murky images of the brain, focused on our reaction to ambiguity, a quality he considered to be at the heart of aesthetic experience. A group of volunteers have been shown the Rubin vase. That's the black and white picture that looks simultaneously like a vase and two faces. You know the famous thing. So you look at it and it's a white vase and you look at it and it's two black faces. Okay. While the volunteers were looking, the usual sophisticated equipment mapped out the electrical responses in different areas of their brains. And sure enough, as each viewer tried to sort out exactly what he or she was looking at, a vase or two faces, so their brain activity flicked back and forth between two different areas in the fusiform gyrus. The names of the different parts of the brain have been invented so that you can't remember them. <laughs> I mean, when you look at a map of the brain, it already seems to be deliberately amorphous and every shape is strange, isn't it? I mean, every little bit of it is, is odd. You can imagine a jigsaw puzzle driving people crazy. And, and then they have these names. Anyway, areas that have long been associated with the object perception and face perception. And this demonstrated, Zeki said, that aesthetic responses had a precise neurological underpinning. I'll spare you the rest of that. Professor Zeki interrupted a certain Ron Crisley, an expert in artificial intelligence. If you tell me which circuits of a computer are active when its chess program moves knight to queen's bishop three, you really haven't told me very much about chess, have you? What a fantastic response. I was thrilled by this rebuttal, its fearlessness, its being absolutely unimpressed by the findings of all those clever machines. But more than that, the obvious point that there was an abyss between the subjective experience of the visual conundrum that the volunteers had been shown, the two faces, the bars, and this record of electric, electrical activity in this or that part of the brain. How could one say the experience was caused by that activity, or emerged from it, or even was it? just because the activity took place. But this excitement was as nothing compared to Riccardo Manzotti's sudden eruption into the open discussion that concluded the conference. There were 30 or so people scattered across a room meant for a hundred, all weary at the end of eight hours of heterogeneous information from fields they were not familiar with. Zeki was center stage talking about the contribution neuroscience could make to aesthetics its ability to analyze in an objective way with scientific equipment the process by which we generated the images we saw. At which point Manzotti leapt to his feet and announced, but Professor Zeki, 
there are no images. He spoke for about five minutes. Everyone, he said, was focusing on what happened in the brain. Everyone was talking about input and output and information processing. Everyone imagined a subject quite separate from an object, as a result of which they had to suppose there were little pictures in the subject's brain representing the world outside the brain, little sounds in the brain, little smells in the brain, colors in the brain, shapes in the brain, and so on. But none of this could be demonstrated. Scientists had looked for pictures in the brain and hadn't found them. They had looked for memories and hadn't found them. The brain was a grayish mass of billions of neurons and various chemical substances. It did not contain the world. If you closed your eyes, Mansokhti insisted, the world disappeared. You could not cross the room you were in with your eyes closed. To have visual experience, you need the world. Aesthetic experience, like all other experience, was not locked up in your head. The experience of the Mona Lisa was the Mona Lisa, as your perceptive faculties allowed it to exist when you stood before it. And this was why people went to see the Mona Lisa rather than gloating over images of it stored in their heads or indeed on their computers. It was extremely aggressive stuff. And Manzotti had a rather wild look to him, an explosion of tangled hair, the most intense blue eyes, and he was passionate, ironic, derisive. And he really couldn't believe how stupid we were all being, he said, buying into this dumb story of images in our head. And when he sat down, I asked the girl next to me who he was, and she said, he builds robots. He's a genius. That was actually about as true as one can get when writing about the past, which one's obviously slightly mythologized. But, but I remember that challenge to authority um, and that willingness to say, wait a minute, maybe all of this is just nonsense, or at least all of this technical information doesn't actually tell us what it says it's telling us, was extremely interesting to me. And I, I became a close friend of Mansofti's, and we must have spent at least a thousand hours discussing his own particular take on this. But, but basically, what lies behind it, it it's an attack on the notion that all our perceptive experience, seeing you all together in the room, you seeing me, everybody obviously with a slightly different vision of what's going on, it's a refusal of the idea that this is actually a representation of the head. Uh, and so you get back to that key question about consciousness that everybody's written about since, since all time, is how can it be out there and maybe in there at the, at the same time? So it's that sort of anarchist spirit, I think, that, yeah, that, that animates... Uh, I don't think he's anarchist. I think he's just, uh, he's just very, he won't, I mean, he, won't, he, won't, he wants an ordered discussion, mm -hmm. but, but he, he, he won't accept a rhetoric of... For, for example, when I started, when, when later, for various reasons, I got this invitation to Heidelberg to discuss consciousness with philosophy professors... Psycho child psychologists and neuroscientists and you know the neuroscientists would say to you <clears throat> you know you've got the poor mouse there which has this thing on its head with probes going into its brain you know? and uh, said so, well you know when the mouse stays in that side of the cage this particular neuron fires and that neuron is telling the mouse that it's in that part of the cage you know? and you say wait a minute 
telling the mouse, uh, the neuron is the mouse, mm -hmm. you know, and the mouse is the neuron. And, uh, and then they say, yeah, but that, that's a metaphorical way of, of speaking about it. Mm -hmm. And so you say, well, okay, well, why don't we stop using the metaphor and say what's actually mm -hmm. going on? And, uh, and then it all gets very nervous because then, because then they actually don't have a, a model for telling you what's going on, you know? Yeah. You could also say, well, maybe that neuron fires because it's in that part of the cage. But it's not. Why have you said the neuron's firing to tell it it's mm -hmm. in that part of the cage? You know, so uh, you realize that, that that you're dealing with with people who are obviously very, very brilliant in in their field, but but are actually operating inside a model which is which they can't justify very often. And then they'll say, when you challenge the use of the metaphors, they'll say, well, we know what we mean by that, right? They'll say, we don't worry about that. We know what we mean when we, when we describe the yeah. brain as a supercomputer or... So let's look at that. We know what we mean. It sounds like a discussion, you know, the transubstantiation, doesn't it? And things like that. But actually, that we know what we mean, I report, I think, three times in the book, mm -hmm. where a point was reached in a conversation with a scientist where they would say, well, we know what we mean. I mean, for example, the whole question of what information is. You know, so information comes from the outside world into the brain. And you say, well, what do we actually mean by information? Now, what are we actually looking at? Or they say it's encoded. And you say, but nobody has decided on a code. You know, we don't know what... You know. And then they say, we know what we mean. And what they mean is that, that you have a situation, as soon as you start saying the brain is locked up in the head and the brain doesn't actually perceive the world but invents the world, which is very much a, a controlled hallucination or a stable hallucination, then at that point we don't know what reality is. So then we need a scientist or a priest to tell us what reality is. So then uh, we move into a situation with an elite. And, uh, and, and then very quickly you realize that this goes right back to Plato in his cave. You know, we're all in a cave, all we're seeing is shadows on the wall. The real thing is outside. You need a philosopher king to tell you what reality is really like, because your experience is not reality. Uh, and, and then you find, what is the plus side of that? Why do, why do we accept that people say, you're separate from the world, you're inside your head? I, I, one of the reasons why you accept it is if you're separate from the world, then, then maybe there's something about you that's special. Then maybe you have a soul. Maybe you can be downloaded onto a computer in the future mm -hmm. and escape death, or maybe you can go to heaven. Uh, there's a kind of mystery that separates you so that when your body decays, you might think that you're, you're going to escape, as mm -hmm. it were. So I think there's definitely a payoff there between accepting the authority of others and... Uh, and this mystery of our supposed separation from the world. It's a big theme in the book that's linked to that about storytelling and, and the, the stories that the scientists are telling one another and the metaphors they choose are linked to that. And at the same time, you know, you've written many novels and your writing life has been split between fiction and nonfiction. And you, you shape the book in a very novelistic way. So there's these wonderful descriptions of your meetings with these experts in Germany. Um, and within them, there's novelistic details about apple strudel and biscuits that are a bit stale, which totally anchors the reader's sort of ability to navigate these scenes where some very tough science and philosophy is discussed. But how did you feel about um, invoking the techniques of the storyteller 
in a book that is at the same time saying, watch out for stories. Well, I hope that, I hope that to tell stories doesn't mean, always mean that you have to consider the reader a sop. I mean, you can construct stories in a way to alert the reader to the dangers of stories. Mm-hmm. I mean, and very early on in the book, I, I, it, it was very important to anchor the book because when you read a, when you read a technical books on consciousness by a neuroscientist like Christoph, Christoph Koch or by a philosopher like Daniel Dennett, uh, obviously they're academic in their approach and obviously, you know, they know more than you to a degree um, that they've studied for, for many years and they deal with this. But you very often get a feeling that there's a personal agenda that, that's undeclared, you know. And, and my work has always been very much about saying any piece of writing has to be understood by where it's coming from. Uh, what was the situation it grew out of? What acts does the guy have to grind? Mm-hmm. What journey is he on from where to where? How does that intersect with me? Mm-hmm. Right. So it was very important for me to, as it were, base the book and say, look, this is actually me dealing with this. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to tell you that this is right or wrong. I'm trying to draw you into the fun of this discussion and also realize that an awful amount of the stuff we hear today, you know, you know the new scientists, the science pages, is really nonsense when you start looking at it closely. That genuinely, that, that you really only need to look at a few sentences to see that these people, that these people are just selling you a story. I think that the most extraordinary discovery in this, in this regard was that guy Eagleman. Mm-hmm. I can't David, remember his first David. name. David Eagleman, who did a BBC series. I mean, it really is triumphant nonsense. And, um, and, and the guys, uh, well, I mean, let's, let's see if we can read uh, uh, just a quote or two from Eagleman. And, and um, obviously being a neuroscience, Eagleton, sorry, not Eagleman. Uh, I, I think I'm deliberately forgetting his name, probably. It's, uh, I, I, it didn't even so much make me angry as just make me bewildered that the BBC would be willing to like here he is, basically he's giving us the platonic line, which is also Galileo's line that, remember that Galileo told us that we have to do violence to our senses if we want to get to the truth. So Galileo decided that color existed only in the brain and, and smell and taste and so on. And the only things that could actually be verifiable in the world were, were things you could measure in, in terms of length, in terms of heat, and so on and so forth. So he said you should do violence to the senses. But then, funnily enough, of course, he asked people to look in a telescope to verify, you know, that. So, so he was actually asking them to use their eyes. And, and Galileo, so Francis Bacon, obviously, all these people were, were suggesting to you that your senses are wrong. So, you know, you're wrong to imagine the world is still. It's not still, it moves. But, but actually, of course, it is still as far as we're concerned. So relative to us, it's still. I mean, so you, basically you have to change the frame of reference to realize it's not still. Anyway, here's, here's uh, Eagleton uh, doing this. Your brain serves up a narrative, and each of us believes whatever narrative it tells. So like this brain is some kind of evil thing in there. I mean, it's got an agenda all of its own. <laughs> it's like deliberately at you. Whether you're falling for a visual illusion 
or believing the dream you happen to be trapped in, or experiencing letters in colour, or accepting a delusion as true during an episode of schizophrenia, hope not, we each accept our realities however our brains script them. Script them, you know, as the brain is, how are we going to fool him today? Despite the feeling that we're directly experiencing the world out there, our reality is ultimately built in the dark, in a foreign language of electrochemical signals. This is all terribly sinister, isn't it? Uh, electrochemical signals in the dark. And then there's this notion that, that there might be some way of directly experiencing the world, but it's not going to happen for you. The activity churning across vast neural networks, the rhetoric's kind of important for creating a feeling of excitement. The activity churning across vast neural networks gets turned into your story of this, your private experience of the world, the feeling of this book in your hands, the light in the room, the smell of the roses, the sound of others speaking, and so on. What if I told you that the world around you with its rich colors, textures, sounds, and scents is an illusion, a show put on for you by your brain? Well, now the brain is a very positive performer, a sort, of, a sort of prosperer. If you could perceive reality as it really is, and this is the statement that, that you almost cannot believe that this guy has said, if you could perceive reality as it really is. So he's posited that there's an absolute reality that could, in fact, maybe be seen. So, I, so what, what on earth would that mean uh, once you've accepted that you know, that each kind of perceptive system has a different experience of the world, okay, that the world happens differently for each different perceptive system. But then to propose that there is a real thing, what kind of eyes would see that, uh, as, as it were? Uh, well, God, presumably. Uh, if you could perceive reality as it really is, you would be shocked by its colorless, odorless, tasteless silence. So is colour and odour and taste not part of reality? And we all know that when the food tastes bad, we put it, you know, obviously it's part of reality. Outside your brain, there is just energy and matter. Just energy and matter. It's quite a big... Uh, over millions of years of evolution, the human brain has become adept at turning this energy and matter into rich sensory experience of being in the world. Now, the BBC put this material in front of millions of people, inviting them to think that this was like the apex of... It's embarrassing. An electrochemical rendition in a dark theatre. Dark, dark, dark. Our perception of reality has less to do with what's happening out there and more to do with what's happening inside our brain. Well, you would thought it's got to do with both. Mm -hmm. right? Obviously, you know, you need a brain, otherwise, otherwise life's not going to happen for you. But, but you know, we all know that days are different, and when the weather's hot, we all, we all feel hot. You know, although I p perhaps feel less hot than you, <laughs> living in Milan as I do, where it's a little bit hotter than this right now. Anyway. But then reacting sort I of... I really wanted to slag off Egan to He's had his telling off. But you may hate this account that I've put together. It may be yeah. telling a story of your yeah. book, but when I was reading it, because I don't come from a neuroscientific background, I, and my background is literature, really. And, and to me, there was a you briefly and wonderfully took us through almost the history of English literature, at least post-Enlightenment. So you talk about the Romantics and their desire to sort of understand 
the world or the, the, the romantics desire that the world reveal itself in a moment of epiphany to say, here I am, this is what animates me. And you're not, you, you have your objections to that. And then you're describing at another point in being in a hotel breakfast bar and you're, and you're sort of saying all the things that are in the room that there was uh, and what was for breakfast, listing them. And that seemed to me very much sort of a 19th century realist approach of all the clutter in the room. Is this how, almost asking yourself as you go, is this how I experience things? There are all these books on the shelves. There are people sitting in front of me, itemizing the world. But it feels like your literary home is in modernism when it comes to consciousness. And I don't know if I'm right about that, but would you agree that the modernists for you have an exciting take on how we perceive the world and our situation in it? Oh dear, I'm sure they do. I just don't think in these terms, you know, I'm just, uh, if there are moments in the book when, uh, for example, the romantic position is, is actually quite an important position because it's clearly a de desire for a revealed truth in mm -hmm. romanticism. But I'm certainly not, not thinking like that. One of, I mean, but, but that doesn't mean it's not true. It just means that I'm not thinking like that. Let me explain that the the book does start with a chapter, which, which tries to which tries to to say, what can any of us ordinary folk say about the business of becoming conscious in every morning when we wake up? So the book begins with a waking, and a going back to sleep, and a waking, and a moving between dream and waking, and a tension with an alarm clock that repeats every 10 minutes and those 10 minutes can seem very short and then they mm. can seem very long so you think damn it should have gone off by now when it hasn't or you think damn it's going off when it shouldn't have uh, and you realize you know that the whole question of time becomes important but above all just to remind readers right at the beginning that we see a world which is colorful and seamless that is there is no space between the objects that we look at uh, you know when we and also that we, we never see more than one side of an object at any, at any one time. Uh, we've never seen a whole object whole. We've, we've never seen that and we never will because they're, they're three-dimensional. And, and yet we use language which, because it denotes words as separate things, putting space between them in, in text, mm -hmm. gives us the impression that we, we hold the whole object with, with us so that words have a kind of platonic idea sort of thing to them. You know, you, a chair is a chair, but actually you just keep seeing that chair from different angles and you never really, as it were, know it all at once. So I wanted to start the book kind of reminding readers just, just how dense life is and, and how, it, how, how it all fits together and how it also it's not framed like a photograph. There are no images as as uh, like it's, it's very interesting. There's an area of focus, there's an area of peripheral vision, and then we, we none of us really know what the, the frame round it is. You know, we move our eyes sideways looking for the... Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The edge of it, but you never have the experience you have looking at a photograph. Mm. That, you know, And we all know how odd it is when you get those glasses or goggles that kind of do mm-hmm. cut the world up like that. So it was an invitation to do that. And I realized that doing that, I'd written 25 pages, which, which I very much enjoyed. But you, you then say to the reader, well, look, reader, if we go on like this, we're really not going to get very far at all, are we? Because the business of experience is so dense. And, and writing is like a very fast train through the landscape. And, and most of good writing is about learning what, what to miss out, mm-hmm. you know, what, what not to put in. And, and then when you do find writers who want to concentrate on consciousness, like, like Joyce, obviously, is the obvious, or, or Wolf, and, uh, and other writers too at different moments, uh, it gets terribly dense, and then it starts to get prettified. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about it, Joyce and Wolf both have a very optimistic vision of consciousness as terribly poetic, mm-hmm. because the writing is very beautiful, whereas it doesn't feel like that to me. And, and then, you know, the reader just gets more and more interested in the style and the writing and the way it's being done. Nobody's interested terribly in the content of Ulysses. Like, you don't open Ulysses to discuss, shall we talk about an, old, an older guy masturbating while he looks at a handicapped girl? No, we don't talk about that. We, you know, we talk about how wonderful, you know. The, the... So it's an invitation to the reader to say, look, how are we going to do this then if we talk about consciousness? Are we going to... Are we going to do the literary thing or not? And and I hoped I was I was I didn't do it, but you're telling me I did. Well, well it was just really professional jealousy because uh, I because you mentioned well, Mrs. That's Dalloway. So sweet of you. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned Mrs. Dalloway twice in this book, and I mentioned Mrs. Dalloway once in my first book, uh, and I realised I wouldn't get away with mentioning her again in the second book. <laughs> so I just I'd really just write Mrs. Dalloway quotes in books all the uh, way through, but you you have to stop at a certain point. But I, so I, I was. You were you picked out these wonderful moments. I would disagree. I think some of Mrs. Dalloway, you, I, I think Wolf does convey this strange vacuum of moments of time where time flaps on the mass. She says, and you do somehow the language does lead you to that empty afternoon in, I know. in my I, head I'm, anyway. Um, I'm on, pre- I'm much more on board with with Wolf, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 Wolf is very interesting in that quite clearly she is a person who does not think that consciousness is, is trapped inside the head. On, yeah. on the contrary, there's this constant feeling that, um, that essentially we are, we are the world of our experience, we are the things that we are looking at, um, uh, and, and we are the particular way our bodies are organizing the, that, that experience, so, or, or are allowing it to happen. So Wolf is, is very much a friend rather than a foe, yeah. yes, yes, no doubt. <laughs> There's a a big uh, thing in the book that I noticed between 
the idea of extension and the idea of, of chopping things into categories. And you just mentioned how the problem of we wake up, we're woozy, we see a slice of the wardrobe and we call it wardrobe, the word wardrobe, which has a sort of whole The whole wardrobe. It's an Ikea wardrobe. Yeah. yeah. And in your... In your Ikea, own... they say in Ikea. <laughs> an Ikea, Ikea wardrobe. that's right. And in your Ikea. earlier book, you talk about language making domes, I think, and teach us to sit still languages to this dome mm. thing. And, and, and I remember something Doris Lessing said about how she thinks there's something wrong with us as humans. We're just sort of built wrong. And the, the novel, The Golden Notebook, came out of this where she had a friend who kept every aspect of her life categorized into Uh-oh. different notebooks. And, and Lessing found this sort of perverse. But there's so much in your book about the beauty of extendedness. You know, your friend Manzotti, you say, I've had the most intense and extended conversations with him. But even you consider yourself and say, I feel the same person that I was 40 years ago. Obviously, I'm not, but I, there is a I sense. don't really. I don't really. <laughs> but you know what I mean? If I see those photos, I just, yeah. there, there must be guy? something in common. Isn't there a sense? Well, the continuity, the continuity is just the being around every day, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, every day you wake up and this is presumably me. And, mm-hmm. and then you realize, looking back, even on old stuff you've written, but also in the way you've lived and the things you've done, that your opinions have changed 100%, uh, that you, you know, I spend most of my life speaking Italian. I, I definitely behave slightly differently in Italy than, than I do here. So, you know, we, we change and yeah. there's a continuity of picking up from the moment before. Let's talk a little bit, because I, I don't know what, how we're doing for time. No, no, ten minutes and then question. Let, let, me give you, let me give you a bit more of, of Manzotti. I don't mm. want to only read about him. He is a... It, it is interesting to meet some. Uh, let me say something about, about Manzotti. Manzotti is about 48 now. Um, he's, he's, uh, he's rather wild, extremely energetic, and absolutely, totally dedicated and obsessed. He does nothing but read philosophy, neuroscience, robotics. He has done that for 25 years now. There is no book he doesn't know. There is no. He is totally out on a limb in the position that he has taken, which we will now see described. And he, he's delighted to be out on a limb. So in a certain sense, you can sense there's a guy who likes a bit of combat. You know, he never gets upset when people reject his work. He knows they're going to reject it. And he tries to reframe it and come back and back at them. And he, he usually gets it accepted in the end. As, as somebody involved in robotics, he has built robots for in his early days for many large robotics companies, particularly in the Far East. And he was given the brief of understanding, uh, of trying to replicate human vision in a robot. And that was when, at quite a young age, he suddenly realized that this notion that the human eye uh, takes information and that this gets turned into images just does not work at all for, for... for a body or for a robot interacting with the world. It doesn't happen. Uh, you know, and your, your computer even does not store images of the world. It stores bits in a particular arrangement which will come up on a screen in, an, in, in, a, in, in a picture which then you need somebody to understand. But there's nobody in your head reading images and there's nobody in a robot reading images. So you have to get to a kind of different interaction and that was when he got, I mean, he's actually a professor of, of philosophy um, not of um, not of robotics, but let me read you. He's he's uh, 
he's also somebody who loves explaining things to people. So here we are in the pub, almost as always, a very nice pub in Milan that I should say sells, the only pub in Milan that sells London Pride. So there's a sort of special consciousness and memory going on for me when I'm, when I'm in this pub, because, uh, in fact, that's why we go there. He, he couldn't give a damn about London Pride. Okay. So, uh, he's trying to explain his position. So you're looking at an apple, okay? Let's call your experience E. Like everyone who studied philosophy, Ricardo always feels the need to denote things with letters, P, Q, X, and Y. And like anyone who has no formal background in logic or philosophy, I experience this as confusing, unnecessary, and a deliberate attempt to set up a teacher-pupil relationship, where I'm the pupil, of course. What are the properties of E, he demands, experience? And without waiting for a reply, which is rather typical, he announces, red, round, and apple-ish, okay? Well, I'd like to find something to object to, but I can't. It's indisputable. That is our experience of the apple. He's actually, he's drawn an apple for me. He's, he's a very good drawer, and he's, he's drawn an apple for me uh, on his notebook. A bit of green, I suggest, maybe a bit of shine in the experience. That's what I meant by apple-ish, he frowns. Now, we've agreed, haven't we, that experience must be physical, and hence it must exist somewhere. This is a very important idea that, I mean, we, most of us forget that we place the object somewhere and we place our brain in there, but, but where is the experience, as it were? Is it in there? Is it out there? So, um, so this is, is his position. It must be somewhere, right? We're not going to accept the idea of some mysterious spirit or substance beyond our ken, as per David Chalmers, nor any Cartesian ghost in the machine. No invisible stuff that nobody can see, nor any magical supervenience. Supervenience is when something mysteriously comes out of something else, courtesy of Daniel Dennett and Block and Clark and company. These are the, these are the people who, who now believe that simply the sheer quantity of interconnections in the brain, which I believe are, arrives at many trillions, uh, that out of that level of interconnectedness consciousness arises. Mm -hmm. But they have no reason for believing this. Uh, they just think the brain is super connected and it does consciousness. So the project is to build a supercomputer as connected as the brain, mm -hmm. at which point it should become conscious. Okay, But the brain is so interconnected that it will be many, many years before. So this is convenient that, you know, it's going to take a long time. They're, they're well, well funded. We're not going to accept that, like a genie arising from a bottle, just because there's a lot of neural activity going on. Agreed. Agreed, I say, somewhat reluctantly. Good. Ricardo, I should say, is a big man who runs and works out regularly and has a strong, meaty presence. So there is almost a physical as well as a rhetorical coercion when he gets going. So, given these appleish properties of my experience, what candidates do we have for the location of that experience? I can think of three. And he writes down the list on the back of the pizza placemat 
N equals neural activity. O equals the apple, the object. P equals the process, which is a constant chain of activity connecting and involving N and O. Does, why do they do this with the initials? Uh, it's true, if you read Garland Strawson in, in his more technical articles, it's just endless. You, read, you reach a point with so many N's, O's, E's, F's, P, Q's that you, don't, you can't remember what they're talking about. Uh, so what's our best choice, he asks. I have no idea. Let's take them one by one. Candidate N, neural activity, is grey, bloody, and gooey, right? It is not round, it is not appleish, it is not red. You can look in your head as long as you like and you will not find apples or anything like apples or images of apples or smells of apples or supervenient apples or magical apples. Bad choice then. On to candidate O then, the object. In this case, an apple. Well, apples are very like apples and very like our experience of apples, are they not? They are extremely apple-ish. It's hard to disagree with this but I still haven't seen where he is going. I'm briefly reminded of that scene in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade where Indiana has to choose which of various cups is the Holy Grail. We must not make a mistake. And finally, candidate P, the process, what do you think? This candidate is immensely complicated, even more complicated than the neural activity because it includes the neural activity as well as a host of other things. We've got the surface of the apple reflecting light rays. We've got physical quanta bombarding the retina. We've got hyperpolarized receptors depolarized beyond. We've got nerve impulses. And he goes on. I don't know what to say. Is that like your experience of the apple? I don't know. Ricardo sighs. If we record what's going on in your brain while you watch the apple, we will find all kinds of fluctuations and oscillations. Is that your experience of the apple? Does it fluctuate and oscillate? No. When you see the apple, it stays right where it is. It does. Steady. It's steady. It's not going to roll around unless we push it. No. At the same time, your pupils, which are part of the perceptual process, are constantly flickering back and forth, but you don't experience that movement. I don't. When you're seeing, you don't experience your eyes seeing. I don't think so. You see the apple. Right. I'm looking at his sketch of the apple. You don't experience your brain. I don't seem to. In fact, the brain, where all this experience is supposedly going on, is one of the parts of the body you experience less, right? When I have a headache. That's another question, another time. So, which of our three candidates best fits the property of your experience of the apple? Okay. I won't go on because it becomes quite clear. Uh, and and what, what Ricardo is really trying to suggest is that that, 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 that all existence is a meeting of, of, of objects which, which exist in so far as they're relative to each other. And the relative existence of the human body with objects is consciousness yeah. at the point of those objects. So that's the game. Uh, and then, curiously enough, it doesn't contradict any neuroscience at all. It's just a different narrative that gets spin round the... Whether it's true or not is a different issue, you know. Well, sort of, there's a beautiful image that you write, you say, reading a poem brings the eye into being, the eye who's reading it brings the eye into being that is the poem, the world and my experience are the same. So that's one of the main sort of uh, conclusions, if you like, or propositions really more than that of the book. And maybe we can 
open that up now to questions to see where where do things happen? Where does experience happen? Is it this external meld between the real world and the, the perceptual apparatus? So I'm terrified of questions, but we'll, we'll, but be we'll okay. do them. Oh, no, no, we'll do them. We'll do them. I, I go towards what I'm afraid of. <laughs> you must face Darth Vader again. Thank you so much, Tim. I mean, this is not in any way an academic question, but just a proposition outside of the human. The octopus, we hear that the octopus has a consciousness scattered across its entire body. I mean, I say that with the crudest of descriptions, right? But it's outside of a single neurological center. The octopus apparently has a different form of consciousness. So when you mentioned the physical aspect of experience, is there something about trying to take this debate, whoever's proposing it, in whichever narrative, outside of, of the head into the body and thinking about it in a much more expansive way altogether? Can people over there hear Well, um, first, obviously, the, the nervous system isn't only in the, in the brain in, in humans, I mean, it spreads throughout the body. Uh, and, and even our neuroscientists would agree that, you know, that's part of the whole connective, connective package as it were, though it's, it's equally true that, you know, you, you could have your foot cut off and, and you continue to be, as it were, you, you know, although the conditions of your life will, will be somewhat, somewhat dis different. There are, there are the people who believe that, that consciousness is totally locked in the head. There are then a gr another group of people who believe that consciousness is spread throughout, throughout the whole body. So, and, and particularly the inactivists. The inactivist believes that your relation with, with objects has to do with your engagement with them. Okay, so they talk about something called affordance. So you see a door with a handle and your hand is already itching, as it were, for that. You, you know that the handle is there for your hand to turn it. Obviously, this is a much easier thing to talk about when we're talking about objects that were clearly designed for us to interact with. It's a bit different when we're talking about maybe the ceiling, which we're not, you know, interacting with. And so they, they suggest that, that experience is a whole, a whole body uh, experience. And then there are others who go beyond that to say that the consciousness is spread out into the objects that you're actually dealing with. Okay, so for example, all those objects that actually become stores for our memory, like our notebooks and so on and so forth. Uh, but that's a totally different, all these positions are rather different from, from this position, which goes under the name of the spread mind, where uh, the actual consciousness is made possible by your body, but is not happening at the point of the body. Okay, so, uh, you know, your consciousness of the glass yeah, is the glass. That doesn't mean, of course, that, it, you know, the consciousness is all the atoms in the glass and all that. It is the glass as, as it is appearing to you. I think one of the interesting things when you start looking at it is that how our sense of vision makes us think that when we're not there, the world is exactly the same. And of course, it, it won't have changed, but if it's not appearing to anybody as it is, for example, if a dog comes along, it's going to see it differently. If an insect comes and sits on this glass, it will have a different experience of that glass. It will, and that's just as valid as it were as, as my experience. One interesting way of playing with this, actually, is to shut your eyes and touch something. You know, I touch the table, there's immediately a feeling of smoothness and coldness, and there's an object which has come into existence which is smooth and cold and so on and so forth. When I'm not touching the, t the, the table, I'm, 
it's finding it very hard for me to think of the table as smooth and cold now. It, it's now looking what it looks like. So every time we engage with the world in a particular way, it comes into being in a certain way. Uh, there is a consciousness that is our body plus that thing. And if you start thinking of sight as a form of touch, when you touch the world with your eyes, it is that. When a colorblind person touches it with his eyes, it is something different. And obviously that object has all the properties necessary to be those things when, when different people come around and look at them. You know? so it, it, it's, it's just a way of thinking about that everything is relative to the, to the person looking at it, the object looking at it. And actually literature is, is a very easy way to think about it. You know, uh, when is a book not a book when nobody reads it, you know? Um, I think of the case of many of mine, I'm afraid, probably right there. But, um, you know, if you think about it, a novel, a novel isn't a novel until somebody reads it. I mean, the words on the page are not really the novel. If nobody's ever read it, then somebody reads it. But, you know, do they know the language properly? Uh, where are they coming from? What is their background? And so on and so forth. Do they know all the words or not? Do they recognize the quotations? Uh, and for each person, the book's different. And then it's different when you read it a few years later. So if you start thinking about objects like that as well, it, the it, idea gets easier. It was interesting that it's not just about the sort of the mechanics, say the eye, if it's colorblind or not. You also add in the other layer of mm. your own history and personality. So you're saying you're the youngest of three, and I'm also the youngest of three children. And that sort of gives us a certain way of interacting with people um, and you were saying I think you know we're often used to deferring to others we always assume other people are older than us because of our position in the family and that's well that's what... certainly a case with me I mean I, I was the youngest I, re I remember in my mid-20s just for the first time beginning to realize that there were people younger than me who mm -hmm. saw me as, as older than them you know because <laughs> and it's actually quite funny because there's a there's an interview in the book with a guy called Thomas Fuchs, who is an inactivist philosopher who works with schizophrenics, he's also a psychologist, a very, very brilliant man, and it was a wonderful talk, and uh, he's actually three years younger than me, you know, but, but I, was, I, I just realized that I was being far too deferent, you know, that I had this thing that I, I'm thinking he's a much older guy than me, you know, and, um, any, anyway, yeah, positioning is very, is, is very interesting. It's very interesting when you go back to remembering interviews or just remembering events in your life, you'll find, or very probably you'll find, that what you remember most easily is your position in the room in relation mm. to the other people at the moment that the important things happen. That position is a terribly important, important thing. You might not remember the colors or what they were wearing, but mm. you'll remember that I was there and, and they were over by the door, you know, and stuff like that. It's very sure. curious. Uh, uh, the neuroscientists can tell you where in the brain there's activity going on over spatial position. So you know, and that, and that, you know, that, that's all very bona fide. You know. I hoped it wouldn't be me because it's such a silly question. But <laughs> you put your hand up. I know. A conflicted person. I know. I'm a masochist. <laughs> I thought that one of the, for me, one of the very interesting questions about is this thing of consciousness. And I remember David Lodge wrote an article some years ago called Quark, this subjectivity. 
Do you know? Do you know that? Yeah, I mean, yeah. David's been been very generous about the book too. So you know, we've we've, we've, we've uh, emailed about it and so on. Yeah, but that's not shown. But that feeling of subjectivity is not sort of shown in the brain, is it? Is it or is it? It's a question of mind or brain. Mm -hmm. Are they two separate things? This, to me, well, seems a big question for our time. Hopefully, yes. I think the answer, yeah. Uh, the brain is the brain. There's yeah. 85 um, billion neurons and a lot of chemicals. And, sure. Uh, uh, the brain is not the mind, the, obviously. The, uh, the, the mind... we have two separate things. I would posit the mind is sort of the, sto a, the stories we tell ourselves. Well, you know, mind is mind is obviously one of those words which which we've invented without a very specific reference. So, uh, you, you know, mind is one of those words you have to say. This is what I mean when I'm talking about mind when you start, because because otherwise we won't know. But I'd like to just take on the word subjectivity, which is a terrible bugbear uh, when people say, you know, well, your vision of this is just subjective. You know, you see it like that, and it's just subjective. We always put the word just before just, just yes. before subjective, which means you're immediately disqualified from. Uh, so there's an air, there's a suggestion of a certain randomness also with subjectivity. Like there's a suggestion that you could have seen it different if only you wanted to, right? Uh, no, it's subjectivity. But actually, in the things we're talking about, uh, things like visual experience, visual perception, you you cannot, you know, I can't decide to see this book cover as red. You know, I can't decide to see something, I can't decide to feel cold if I'm feeling hot. So when we're talking about this kind of perceptive experience where our neuroscientists insist on talking about hallucination, we, we discover that actually it follows, follows very strict rules uh, and, and that's why we have very little difficulty getting on. Okay, let, let's, let's consider my reading of a certain book. Okay, I come to a certain book let's say something like Katsia. We, we probably all have read Katsia, a book like Disgrace. Okay? Katsia is obsessed with, with good and evil. Okay? Those are the issues. The issues are always if somebody's a good person or a bad person. Not whether they're a fearful person, not whether they're a winner or a loser, not whether, they're, uh, not whether they belong in the group or not. It's whether they have behaved ethically. Ethical behavior is an obsession for Katsia. When I read Katsia, I move into I move into a territory which is the territory of my family. I grew up with Protestant, Anglican, evangelical parents, where the way everybody was judged was ethically. That was the only way people could be. So when I engage with a book by Katsia, the book is relative to me. There is material in that book that makes it happen for me in a certain way. Now, somebody coming from a totally different background totally is going to interact with that book in a different way. But to call it subjective in the sense of saying it's all locked inside your skull and it's in some way random is, I think, wrong. There, is, there are obvious reasons why I interact with that book as I, as I do. You know? so, I've been told that um, our experience in this format is about to draw to a close for, uh, for time purposes. But can we thank uh, Tim for a fascinating talk? <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.